0: Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives.
1: This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast.
0: Today's episode will focus on the impact of humanities generally, with specific attention to the publicly engaged humanities projects. The humanities, as you know, is an overarching term for disciplines such as communication, rhetoric, anthropology, history, classical studies, and cultural studies. These disciplines study various facets of the human experience through qualitative, ethnographic, and critical, and other forms of research. Today on Communication Matters, I'm speaking with Stephen Kidd and Daniel Fisher from the National Humanities Alliance, or NHA, also joining me today is Katherine Burton, Portfolio Development Specialist at Rutledge, Taylor & Francis. You may recall that Taylor & Francis is NCA's publishing partner for our 11 academic journals, and Cath has been a longtime friend of the association and of all of us who work at NCA. Hi, Cath. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks, Trevor. It's lovely to be here with you all.
0: So Rutledge, Taylor & Francis recently released an article and a book chapter collection entitled Publishing and the Publicly Engaged Humanities. Can you tell me a little bit about the origins of that collection and Rutledge, Taylor, and Francis's partnership with the National Humanities Alliance, or NHA?
1: So the idea to showcase book and journal articles via the online collection was a truly collaborative effort with colleagues from the National Humanities Alliance. And in part, it was designed to amplify the Humanities for All database of publicly engaged projects that Daniel Fisher and others have created. It was also a great opportunity to highlight content from the Routledge portfolios across the humanities in a thematically linked way and promote the collection to an audience who we understood, perhaps more anecdotally, to be turning towards the public humanities in the course of their scholarship. What the collection identified was that if you are working as a publicly engaged scholar or consider yourself to be at the vanguard of the public humanities, publication in traditional journals and books is possible and has perhaps been happening for a while. So the collection provided us with an opportunity for Outledge to collaborate with NHA and reach authors and readers who are actively engaged in building the public humanities through publication.
0: This collection includes research from a variety of fields, including history, English, ethics and rhetoric. How do these articles and book chapters reflect the broad values of public humanities projects, do you think?
1: So I think that's a really great question, Trevor. I think it underscores why the collection has captured the imagination. Public Humanities projects emphasise inclusivity, collaboration and diversification. For instance, what the Public Humanities projects included in the collection show is that there is an essential value in capturing all the parts of the work and the people involved in the publication process too. Just to give you an example, in Barry M. Goldenberg's Rethinking History article, he describes an experimental collaboration between graduate and public high school students that combines traditional historical methods with community engagement. The project used a mix of methods to co-create oral histories, online exhibits using a maker and other secondary research. This provided the opportunity not only to showcase engagement practices between tertiary and secondary education institutions, but to think about how history is taught and learned. In working with the community, the project produced research that would further the discipline and included future humanities knowledge makers in the process of determining historical practices for themselves. And I do just want to recognise the role that digital practices play in the creation of public humanities projects, and perhaps note a point of tension with current publication models. As publishers, we need to diversify publication options for scholars so that we can incorporate the full range of work involved in projects, not least in terms of digital or perhaps non-traditional outputs derived from this work. Things like project websites, digital collections and apps are often common outputs from public humanities projects but they're perhaps not easily incorporated into a peer-reviewed journal article or book, and often sit alongside the final output. There is work being done here, and with the integration of more open publishing models into existing workflows, we might see some more movement in the traditional space. But perhaps even more significantly than the integration of open digital into public humanities publication, we're also keen to show how the methodological aspects of doing engaged work are being captured in publication. This important aspect of doing public humanities work doesn't always find a place in long-form book or research articles and is not always included in evaluations of a scholar's work, but it is incredibly valuable to share what did and didn't work with others who may be embarking on their own projects or who are skilling up future scholars to become experts in this field of inquiry. Again, there's overlap here with some of the open digital scholarship practices in the humanities.
0: Yeah, that's that speaks to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, how we envision the sort of public impact of this kind of engaged humanities initiative. How do we get out of the scholarly publishing model exclusively to have a broader public impact to this work?
1: In the current climate, and very broadly speaking here, it really feels like publicly engaged humanities initiatives provide an opportunity for scholars to include what matters, not just what counts in their publication record. While what counts is still important, not least while traditional evaluation measures remain in place for career progression, public humanities initiatives provide an opportunity to illustrate how knowledge contributes to a broader narrative beyond academia. For instance, initiatives such as the Being Human Festival that takes place in the UK each year highlight the value of the humanities in society and embed scholarly research and practice within the public setting. The impact of these initiatives may be somewhat more challenging to quantify than some other areas of scholarly inquiry, but in terms of enriching community life, expanding inclusive and diversifying scholarly practices, as well as rethinking what it means to be human, they are essential.
0: Yeah, that's that's I think really important. And I know that the friends and colleagues that I have who are engaged in public humanities work really take that to heart and hope for a broader public impact beyond their, you know, sort of narrowly defined scholarly careers. Speaking of that, bringing this a little closer to home, Taylor and Francis, we're thrilled, has been our partner for several years now in publishing NCA's 11 academic journals. In that context, what do you think are the contributions that you've seen or that you hope to see in terms of this public humanities project from the discipline of communication?
1: So I'm excited to see more public scholarship from NCA's authors specifically. And communication studies more generally, especially given work around social justice, inclusivity and community engagement within the field and where NCA has also been leading. There are a couple of pieces on technical communication included in the collection that we thought would be appealing to an audience of applied communication scholars, as well as the niche journal communities that those publications serve. And the Remembering Emmett Till project provides a great opportunity to understand how digital outputs play into the publication of public humanities projects. What I think I would like to see, however, is more critical inquiry into public humanities projects and perhaps how that critical thinking can be woven more generally into pedagogy. I think COM is well placed to engage in that inquiry, especially given the rhetorical foundations of the field and applied and perhaps more digital practices that are emerging in areas within communication education.
0: I know a lot of our colleagues in English and English literature have made much of the capacity of digital humanities work to bring text to life, for instance, in interactive ways. And I like what you suggested there about the critical component, because often those sort of invite a, a less robust kind of criticism. And, and I agree, I think communication is nicely poised to do that. What sort of publishing advice then would those of you at Taylor & Francis have for our colleagues and our academics who are involved in these public humanities types of projects?
1: Yeah, that pressure to publish is linked to promotion, tenure and career progression more generally, drive scholars to publish more and in ways that will fit a prescribed evaluation model perhaps. increasingly there are opportunities as I think some of the articles in the collection illustrate to publish all the parts of the process in traditional journals and books and if there's one thing that the collection has shown us is that editors books publishers and journals are embracing public humanities so pick up a conversation use the collection as inspiration and pitch your project to editors who've already indicated their interest in the public humanities above all though think about your audience and who you want to reach through publication That's a good general principle for any aspiring author, but perhaps with public humanities projects, there's a need to consider a broader range of potential audiences. So perhaps consider starting a blog to run alongside your project so you can share parts of the process as they evolve and possibly test ideas as they emerge. And crucially, perhaps, given the community involvement in public humanities projects, provide a connection for your collaborators who might be situated outside of academe. That all being said, I do recognise that there are challenges associated with public humanities and publication. My hope will have more to talk about in collaboration with NHA soon, but given the positive response to the collection to date, we've been inspired to do more to support public humanities researchers and practitioners, and have just kicked off a project with nine field-leading experts who will be creating model practices for public humanities and publication. The output from that project will be shared at the National Humanities Conference in November, and is intended to continue the conversation about how to get published if you're doing public humanities work. We anticipate that the group will create some useful guidance and outline publication opportunities for the growing community of publicly engaged scholars now emerging.
0: I know that many of the individuals involved in the public and digital humanities communities are also engaged in urging promotion, tenure, and university administrative committees to rethink what counts as scholarship. And I think that's a positive development as well. And I'm really appreciative of you joining us today, Kath, and talking about this exciting new initiative at Taylor & Francis.
1: Well, thanks to you, Trevor, and everybody at NCA for this opportunity, for talking a little bit more about the collection and what we've got on the horizon for public humanities and publication.
0: I hope that we will see many more Public Humanities publications in the future at NCA Journals and with our friends at Taylor & Francis. So thanks again. Now let's turn to Stephen and Daniel from NHA. Founded in 1981, NHA is a coalition of more than 200 organizations, including universities and scholarly associations like NCA. NHA brings together these organizations to develop best practices for advocating for the humanities and to advocate for federal funding for the humanities overall. NHA also works to promote the public value of the humanities. We're thrilled that Stephen Kidd, who is the executive director of NHA, and Daniel Fisher, who is the project director for the Humanities for All project, are joining us today Humanities for All is a particularly unique initiative that promotes publicly engaged humanities work, and it showcases more than 1,500 projects, including public lectures, community-based research, and service learning projects. These projects demonstrate that engaged teaching and research in the humanities strengthens our communities, leads to better learning experiences, and advances humanities scholarships. Thank you guys for coming and joining us today. This is great. Today, we'll be discussing the NHA Annual Meeting the National Humanities Conference that's coming up in November of 2020, and the Humanities for All initiative. So let's start with you, Steve. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thank you. A few questions about NHA so that our listeners can know what NHA is all about. Can you tell us a little bit about how NHA got started, what some of its
2: goals are, the programs and initiatives it pursues, that sort of thing? Sure. Yep. NHA was founded, as you said, in 1981, when the Reagan administration was trying to drastically cut funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities. At that time, a group of humanities organizations from across the spectrum, so including scholarly societies, individual colleges and universities, libraries, museums, state humanities councils, came together to speak against those cuts with one voice. They founded the NHA to be that voice, to organize the community to go to Capitol Hill, go to the administration and tell the story about the public value of the NEH. From that time, though, our mission has been much broader than that to include advocating for the public value of the humanities more broadly. In recent years, we've really focused on that second part of the mission, along with maintaining a focus on advocating for federal funding on Capitol Hill. We do the advocacy for the public value of the humanities through three initiatives, one being the Humanities for All initiative that Daniel will talk about. Then, also an initiative called Study the Humanities, which advocates for the value of studying the humanities as an undergraduate. And then we have an initiative called NEH for All, which is really digging into the community impact of NEH funded projects. Can I probe a little
0: bit on that second one, the Study the Humanities initiative? We know a lot of our sister disciplines, our friends in history, in language and literatures, philosophy, and the like, are lamenting the fact that they've seen really steep declines in both enrollments in their courses at the undergraduate level and the numbers of majors, students majoring in their disciplines. You know, we've noticed that at the annual meeting and advocacy days, there are workshops on recruiting students to the humanities. I'm assuming this flows out of the study in the humanities initiative what can we expect to see at those workshops? I mean, how, in other words, how do we persuade undergraduates to major in the
2: humanities? Right. So the study, the humanities initiative is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon foundation. And the idea behind it is that we need to come together as a community to make an affirmative case for the value of studying the humanities. We have to work on outreach to various audiences, including students themselves, but also their parents, to talk to them about why they should think about studying the humanities as an undergraduate. We observed through other work we were doing that there were efforts going on on individual campuses to market the humanities to students, to pursue curricular innovation that would make the humanities more interesting and seemingly more relevant to students and, and their interests. And we decided that we needed to learn more about these initiatives and create a community of practice in which Those who are pursuing them now or interested in pursuing them in the future could exchange knowledge, best practices on this kind of work. So at the NHA annual meeting, we'll be having a series of workshops that feature projects we've learned about through a survey, the Humanities Recruitment Survey Hmm. that we've been doing over the past year. So folks will learn about initiatives on individual campuses, and then have the opportunity to brainstorm with others who are also interested in undertaking more concerted efforts to recruit students, huh. and then present their ideas back to the group.
0: What are some of the best practices that you're that you're seeing? I mean, I, I'm curious about some of these arguments that people are making, because I know that this is a real concern across the nation in a lot of humanities areas. i yep. just... any kind of preview
2: sure yeah so one thing we've learned about is the power of cohort groups bringing undergraduates in for a special experience focused on an array of humanities disciplines Mm -hmm. interdisciplinary work and giving them that special um orientation toward the humanities and what they what they are and do prior to them coming to college prior so to them coming to college while they're trying
0: to decide and recruitment
2: right other things that we've seen so far are instilling a marketing mindset in your teaching so that might just be paying attention to the way in which you're framing your class as part of a broader humanities curriculum And talking to students about what they might expect to do after they've taken your course or after they've majored in a subject. And then there are all kinds of career pathway kinds of initiatives that are focused on working with career counseling offices and employers to talk to them about what humanities majors can bring to the workplace but ensuring that that potential humanities majors also understand that employers are in fact interested in their skills. Right.
0: And we know that from just about every employer survey that comes out. That's right. tells us that. You know, interesting thing from the communication standpoint is that we have not seen the declines in enrollments or majors that many of our other disciplines have had. But I've always not seen this as a zero-sum game, right, that we're all in this together. And as we look at looming enrollment declines across the board, across mm-hmm all the university sectors this issue of promoting the humanities can be really important right on the flip side in terms of advocacy days and budgeting and the federal budget for research in the humanities NHA was very quick to note and celebrate that the latest round of budget negotiations saw a pretty substantial increase for NEH funding and the largest increase, I think you guys said, in a decade, That's which is fantastic. But I'm wondering if you might think about or let us know how you think. NHA's work and the advocacy that we've been doing for the last decade have made a difference. Do you think there's any kind of, I'm not suggesting a causal correlation, Mm -hmm. but do you think there's any kind of meaningful connection to be found in those increases?
2: Absolutely. I think that the increases are a testament to the number of advocates who have been coming to Washington and engaging their elected officials and talking to them about their own work and the impact of NEH-funded humanities projects in their state mm-hmm. and in their district. We really provide a context a platform for those of you who are around the country doing this work right. to come to Washington to talk about your work in your own words. And that's what really connects with members of Congress. And the growing amount of support on Capitol Hill for the NEH and for humanities work in general is really due to both the work that is being done around the country in the humanities and its impact, but the work that advocates do coming here Mm -hmm. and talking with their elected officials. It's, It's all of those advocates who really should get credit for these increases.
0: That's great. Especially with, you know, the hostility I think from the administration on a lot of these questions. It's it's nice to see that Congress is has our back, if you will. Um,
2: yeah, Congress really gets it. They yeah, really you know understand the impact of of all of this funding in their districts in a way the administration just has not paid attention to
0: i've been actively advocating with nha for the last few years and you know one of the points that we always make when we go to capitol hill is talking about the local impact what other arguments do we make for you know continued federal funding for the humanities that Mm -hmm. you know might lead to even more increases in the future
2: yeah yeah I mean, local impact is one of the strongest ones, but then there are also impacts that address certain societal needs. One thing we've been talking quite a bit about is the role that the humanities can play in times of personal and community crisis. So we just did a briefing on Capitol Hill last month involving veterans programs. And we brought veterans in to talk about ways in which reading literature and having discussions about, the, about that literature with groups of, of veterans and community members help them deal with their sense of isolation and help them connect more on their campus and in their community. So these kinds of programs really have policy outcomes, that lawmakers care about beyond, in their own communities, but beyond their community as well.
0: Alongside of the annual meeting and advocacy days, another initiative that NHA has been pursuing over the last few years is the National Humanities Conference. How long have you guys been doing this?
2: This was our
0: fourth year. Fourth, the one in Honolulu. That's uh, this past November. So in 2020, the National Humanities Conference is going to be November 5th through the 8th in Indianapolis, Indiana. Coincidentally, this is just a few days before the NCA annual conference, also to be held in the same city, Indianapolis, Indiana. And like NCA, the Humanities Conference has a similar theme. So humanities at the crossroads or something along those lines, and NCA's is communication at the crossroads. I'm wondering, besides the obvious Indiana connection, what do you think about humanities at the Crossroads. What does that mean as a context for your conference?
2: Yeah, so we we are looking at various facets of crossroads as a as a concept. One crossroads as a place of decision, one as crossroads as as freedom, one as crossroads as uncertainty, and then one crossroads as intersection. So crossroads is a pretty capacious concept, and we we expect folks to come at it from a lot of directions. In terms of thinking about humanities broadly at a crossroads, I think all four of these um, facets can apply to our thinking about the humanities at this time. My favorite one, I think, is the crossroads as uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And this is an idea that the crossroads is a kind of transformational place. And it's a liminal place where you're neither here nor there, but going through some process of renewal, some process of of transformation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think about the humanities as constantly going through a process of transformation. It's about analysis and questioning. And, you know, the concept of uncertainty is also supposed to apply to our engagements with the humanities, that the humanities can make us uncertain about where we are Mm -hmm. while trying to find reference points and and grounding. And that public programs in particular in the humanities can emphasize this uncertainty. You're bringing a group of people together to read, reflect, discuss things. And you don't know what's, what's going to happen exactly with that. It's an uncontrolled situation. But it's also a situation with enormous promise and possibility. So with our emphasis on public engagement, this is a place of uncertainty for scholars who are engaging audiences maybe in ways they haven't before and it's also for our communities who are using the humanities as a way to ask questions of themselves and to maybe move into new terrain.
0: There's an opening there for a communication scholarship, I think, when we talk about the public engagement of the humanities. You're fairly familiar with the discipline and with what we're all about, do you think? NCA folks should think seriously about doubling up on their Indiana conferences this fall?
2: I think they absolutely should. The unique thing about the National Humanities Conference is that it brings folks together from across the disciplines, but also from various kinds of organizations. So the idea behind it is to bring together those who are working in an academic context, Mm -hmm. with those who are working in organizations outside of the academy.
0: Don't you co-sponsor it with the state federations of humanities councils or something? We do.
2: So we, we have been hosting the meeting with the state humanities councils, and it's really geared toward fostering more collaboration between the humanities councils and those who are based at higher ed institutions so the extent to which we have more voices in that it just becomes a stronger and stronger event and a more generative kind mm-hmm. of kind of environment that's great
0: that's also a good segue by the way (laughs) to discussing humanities for all and talking about the the work that nha does in terms of humanities in the public realm and in the public space you know nca has been really pleased to partner with nha for a lot of years and this good work is fantastic i'm wondering daniel as the project director of humanities for all how you would describe it and what its goals are all about And then we'll talk more specifically about the ways in which communication scholars are are a part of the humanities for all effort.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. Over the last 20 years, we at NHA and others across the humanities have observed a, a real increase in the level and quality of publicly engaged work across the U.S. This includes research, teaching, preservation, and programming conducted with and for diverse public groups, we're interested in supporting that as an organization for a couple of reasons. First, it broadens the horizons of humanity's work. It allows us to do new kinds of research, to teach in innovative and engaging ways, to preserve more of our our shared cultures, and to create programming that really connects with all kinds of folks. So with the generous support of the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, we launched Humanities for All to document, to promote, and really to build capacity for publicly engaged work in higher ed. To document and promote this work, we began by surveying the state of the field. We collected, as you mentioned before, over 1,500 examples of research, teaching, preservation, and programming initiatives. We think of it as a kind of representative rather than a comprehensive cross-section of the field. We built a website, humanitiesforall.org, to house this database and to allow you know scholars and, and folks from all over to dig into the data. We provided three ways into the data. First, a database that's searchable and sortable along a wide range of axes. You can sort it by discipline, you can sort it by region, you can sort it by theme. Each project is tagged you know, in a number of ways. We wrote um, over 50 profiles of projects that represent really the range of work in the field. You can see how, how others have done what they've done. You can dig in and you can really be inspired. So you can see if you're working in a humanities center, what other faculty and humanities centers have done. If you're working in communication studies or rhetoric, you can see what your colleagues have done and you can think broadly about what you could do. We've also written three essays that outline patterns in the field and the data that we, we collected. The first builds a kind of rough typology of five types of projects that we observed. The second outlines a set of overarching goals that we found you know, most of the projects sought to achieve. What are some of those goals? They do things like inform contemporary debates, helping people make sense of things like race and culture. Mm -hmm. They amplify community voices and histories. So they, they go out into the world and they, they conduct oral history research. They, they dig into archives and they share that with broad audiences telling untold stories and, and amplifying the voices of those who have not always been heard by all. They can also help individuals and communities navigate difficult experiences. You know, for example, there's a great many projects that involve veterans in reading uh, you know, literature that helps them make sense of and give voice to their experiences of war they're expanding educational access they're creating resources for K to 12 teachers K to 14 teachers right they're also creating programming for folks that have not had access to the humanities they're also preserving culture in times of crisis and change when you go out and give voice to to community voices and histories you're you're preserving those voices partnership is really key to to many of these projects. And so we've collected through interviews of project directors thoughts on what it means to be a partner and how they went about building their partnerships. It can be complex, but it is almost always rewarding.
0: Great. And those essays are available on the Humanities for All website? Yes, home website. absolutely. Right, right.
3: They're on humanitiesforall.org.
0: Great, great as are some of these communication projects that you're going to highlight.
3: Yes, I can think of two that really represent the range of work in the field. The first example is the Emmett Till Memory Project. Mm -hmm. It's a partnership led by Dave Tell of the University of Kansas and the Emmett Till Memorial Commission. In 2007, historical markers commemorating Emmett Till were installed and rather quickly became the target for vandals. They were sprayed with bullets, They were scraped of their words, and some uprooted and thrown in the river. In 2014, Tell and Patrick Weems of the Emmett Till Memorial Commission launched the Emmett Till Memory Project to respond to these acts of vandalism by creating digital memorials that really couldn't be defaced. So together they led a team to build a GPS-enabled smartphone app that takes visitors to 18 sites related to Till's murder and the trial in the Mississippi Delta. And at each site, the app provides the perspective of folks that were associated with that site. So if you're at the the courthouse, you can see how jurors might have made sense of the situation at the time. If you're where the black press stayed, you could get their version of the story. These are very different stories. And as Till says, that's the point.
0: Memory Project is about all of the various dimensions of the Emmett Till case, if you will, right? Yes. Okay.
3: And it provides a public and engaging access point. And as a
0: plug, Dave Tell's book on the Emmett Till Memory Project is out Mm -hmm. from the University of Chicago Press, and I I think it's been fairly well received. And so um, just put in a plug there for, for Tell's scholarship.
3: It's a wonderful example of how public engagement can also lead to academic publication. Indeed. Right. Now, the second example that comes to mind is the DNA Discussion Project, hmm. led by Anita Fomen and Bessie Lawton at Westchester University of Pennsylvania. The project uses commercially available DNA testing to open up conversations about race and identity. It's informing contemporary debates. That's great. Participants have their DNA analyzed. They spit in a test tube right. and uh, they, they do pre and post surveys and then they discuss you know, whether the results were what they expected. What does it mean for their understanding of their race, their self, and their community? Comparison of these surveys has enabled research on, for example, how interracial individuals might conceive of, you know, their uh, race and identity after DNA testing reveals whatever it reveals.
0: So for all of our listeners who are not Dave Tell and Anita Foman and her colleagues, how do they get included into the database? If if somebody's doing a work engaged in public humanities projects, how do they become a part of Humanities for All?
3: Well, they go to humanitiesforall.org grow. We really would welcome uh, any and all contributions of publicly engaged communication work to better represent the field as it grows and as it engages new and and different groups. Early this year, we're also launching a blog to feature writings by outside Authors on humanitiesforall.org. And if there's something you've been thinking about, I'd really encourage you to reach out to me via the website and we can talk.
0: Certainly take advantage of the opportunity to further disseminate your work to broader publics and to demonstrate its value. Thanks, Daniel. This is fantastic talking about the important work that you guys are doing. I'm interested in in a sort of conclusionary way to talk about how we would generally think about the public value of the humanities, what we would normally understand in sort of a follow-up on both of these topics, how it is we entice or induce young people to find their interest in the humanities, but also the broader public value of the humanities. How would you all describe the public value of the humanities?
2: Well, we're actually very interested in that question. Right now, Mm -hmm. and being able to further articulate the public value. And as part of all three of our main initiatives, we have been doing some surveying work to help us really gain a deeper understanding of what participants in various kinds of humanities engagements gain from that experience. So, we have been surveying undergraduates who are in focused humanities cohorts. We've been surveying undergraduates who are doing publicly engaged humanities work. Then, also participants in community preservation projects, teachers who do summer workshops and gain uh, deeper understandings of various communities that they then bring back to the classroom. So in that sense, we are learning about ways in which the humanities foster community pride, help individuals deal with, with trying or disorienting kind of situations, we are also very interested in the broader public goods that come out of the presence of the humanities and communities. We will be embarking on a new project that is focused on broad community impacts. So looking at what it means to a community to have a museum dedicated to its history, what it means to a community to know that the NEH is supporting preservation work there. So the idea is that there are broader public goods that come from these activities that stretch beyond the individual participation impact, which is robust, and we are getting great information about that, but that there are broader goods to our society. And that those include students studying the humanities, Mm -hmm. that that is not just an individual return on investment issue, it is a broader civic and societal benefit. One of the more persuasive appeals we usually make on Capitol
0: Hill when we're talking about funding, that always seems to work with the members of Congress that we talk to is the historical newspapers, the local newspapers the, digitizing process. That's right. Because again, it's the record and the real history
2: of very localized communities that that project seeks to preserve. That's so. right. And that's a really unique partnership between the National Endowment for the Humanities and the library of congress usually working with state libraries right. to fund the preservation and digitization of historical newspapers in communities around a state that then those newspapers become resources for individual community members but yeah. students and teachers and researchers as well so it is a very powerful Example, but one of our goals is to be able to tell this story of broad public impact to various kinds of policymakers because these impacts are happening. People appreciate the humanities in their communities, but as a policy matter, the humanities are largely invisible on local and state levels. And with private funders to an extent. And many of them are interested in the policy outcomes that can come from the humanities, but they don't make that connection.
0: You know, in a way, it appears to me that we're sort of behind the curve on that demonstration of impact. you right. You think about the power that science, biomedical research, STEM disciplines, etc., have had in securing funding and in demonstrating their impact, we're sort of playing catch up on that.
2: We need to be making the case constantly and in perpetuity. It's just something that we, as a community of scholars and practitioners, need to infuse our everyday work with.
0: When you talk about students in particular too, right, particularly undergraduate students, this question of employability always comes up. And again, perhaps the humanities is behind the curve a bit. The STEM disciplines and the more professional or pre-professional disciplines are able to overtly demonstrate their employability of the major. How do you think the humanities go about? What do you guys think about the ways to really develop that employability question in ways that don't sacrifice what the humanities can contribute, but still answers the question for parents and for prospective college students?
2: Right. We need to do more than one thing at a time. We need to address the employment issue And the facts are actually quite strong that humanities majors gain employment at rates that are very similar to other areas of study, and that employers are looking for humanities majors to fill jobs. So we need to address what are real concerns from from parents and students. Mm -hmm. They are investing a lot of money in education- and they want to make sure that they have a secure future. So we need to take that seriously right. and we can. At the same time, we need to talk about what is the what are the unique contributions of the humanities outside of employability. Right. Right. What studying the humanities contributes to a life well led and uh, ability to foster strong and civically engaged communities.
0: Well, as I said, NCA has been pleased to partner with NHA, and we look forward to continuing those efforts and those initiatives. Thank you so much, Steve Kidd and Daniel Fisher from NHA for joining us today. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you so much.
0: And if anybody out there is interested Look for announcements about the NHA annual meeting and advocacy days. NCA regularly publicizes those events every year. And the National Humanities Conference, again, this year in November in Indianapolis. You can find all information about that at the National Humanities Alliance website, which is nhalliance.org nhalliance.org, or link to it from natcom.org, the NCA website. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this lively discussion of the value of the humanities and the work that NHA does. In NCA news, NCA's latest brief reports on faculty attitudes toward technology using data from inside higher ed. According to the SEA brief, as of 2019, only 46% of college and university faculty reported having taught an online course, compared with 98% of faculty members who have taught face-to-face courses. However, the number of faculty who teach online courses continues to increase, and faculty members who have taught online are more likely to agree that online teaching is as effective as face-to-face teaching. You can find the full brief at natcom.org slash Seabriefs. Also in NCA news, you still have time to submit to the NCA 106th Annual Convention with the theme Communication at the Crossroads. You can submit via NCA's Convention Central. The deadline to submit proposals for the convention is Wednesday, March 25th at 1159 p.m. Pacific Time. Nearly 100 NCA interest groups, affiliate organizations, and special series have issued calls for submission, and to review those calls, click the View Calls tab at NCA Convention Central. You're encouraged to submit early and ask questions in advance of the deadline. For tips and suggestions for submitting your work, as well as professional guidelines for participants, visit the Convention Resource Library at natcom.org convention. In other NCA news, recently, NCA's quarterly Journal of Speech published What to Do When You're Raped? Indigenous Women Critiquing and Coping Through a Rhetoric of Survivance by Valerie Ann Weisskamp and Courtney Smith. According to the article, Native women are more likely to be raped than women of other races and ethnicities. Statistics show that non-Native men perpetuate the vast majority of assaults on Native women. Weisskamp and Smith examined the illustrated handbook What to Do When You're Raped, an ABC handbook for Native girls, which was produced in 2016 by Native American community leaders through the lens of survivance rhetoric, which addresses sexual violence in the context of settler colonialism. The What to Do When You're Raped handbook challenges settler colonialism and offers resources for Native women and girls when in crisis. To read this article, if you're an NCA member, and the entire NCA library, visit natcom.org slash journals. Upcoming Communication Matters episodes will feature Chuck Morris, professor and chair of the Department of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University and the new chair of NCA's Research Council. Chuck will be speaking with us about communication research in the area of rhetoric and LGBTQ history, as well as some of the NCA Research Council's goals for 2020. We'll also talk to Tom Nakayama, Professor of Communication Studies at Northeastern University and one of the five newly installed NCA Distinguished Scholars from 2019. Tom will be speaking with us about research on whiteness and international and intercultural communication. So stay tuned for these upcoming Communication Matters episodes in the coming weeks. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time.
1: Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C. The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bose, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando and Content Development Specialist Grace Ebert. Thank you for listening.